You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're continuing our series through this short but very powerful book. And as we do, we come to the end of chapter two, which is really a prayer for those who are in need of encouragement. And I think this applies to pretty much everyone. We're going to look specifically at verse 16 and 17, but for context, let me start in verse 13 and we will pray together. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, And hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the source of all that we need for salvation, for life, and particularly today, encouragement. I pray first for those who do not yet know that, that they would come to know that Jesus is their salvation and hope, and that they would not only know, but trust in the gospel today. And I pray for us as a church, wherever it is that we might be discouraged, that you would encourage us, that you would show us what it means to be encouraged and how it happens so that we might live faithfully representing you in this world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Martin Luther King Jr. admitted to being scared to death and paralyzed by fear the night he got the call. The voice on the other end of the line threatened to take his life and destroy his home. After he hung up the phone, he sat down in the dark of his kitchen, made himself a cup of coffee, and planned all the ways that he might leave Montgomery, Alabama without looking like a coward. I was weak, he said. I couldn't take it any longer. But it was when he confessed his fear to God from his kitchen table that he heard a second voice, stand for truth. Stand for justice. I will be with you even to the end of the world. 
I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. We know that it would be tested again and again in the coming years, but that night, he found courage amid opposition. And when I hear that story, it reminds me of a famous quote by Carl Barker, who said, courage is fear that has said its prayers. <laughs> courage is fear that has said its prayers. Friends, the good news is that everyone who trusts in Christ can find courage in the midst of opposition. And one of the primary ways we experience that is in prayer. Discouragement can be a place of temptation. But discouragement can also become the place of transformation. And here, Paul shows us one of the most powerful practices that can make that difference. Prayer. But why? And how? How do we pray when we need encouragement? Well, for context in this chapter... At the beginning of chapter two, Paul has been bringing clarity around what we often call end times events in the Bible, where the present course of human history will go before Jesus Christ returns. The reason this clarity was needed back then is that false teachers had unsettled the men and women in Thessalonica by telling them that Jesus had already returned, that they had missed the second coming of Jesus. And Paul is saying, no, there are certain obvious signs before that will happen. And that in any case, the timing of these events makes very little difference about how you are to live your lives now, day by day. They must hold fast to the teachings of the gospel. They must stand firm as a church and they must engage with the mission they've already been given as followers of Jesus. But it certainly was not easy for them. If you go back to chapter one, Paul already alluded in his letter to the opposition, the persecution that these men and women face, not to mention the trials that they were experiencing. And so after giving them the right perspective on how to think about the future return of Jesus, and after calling them to hold fast and to stand firm in their faith, he prays for them. He prays for discouraged people, which I love. Because here... Paul's prayer is an acknowledgement that we do grow weary in the struggle. We do tire in the face of opposition, and we are not shamed for doing so. But it is, in the midst of it, possible to overcome. So how should we pray amid discouragement? And why can we pray at all? Here's three lessons we learned from this brief prayer at chapter 2. They're so vital 
to pray when we are in need of encouragement. And the first is this. It might be obvious, but it's so important. Number one, you must remember who you are praying to. When you pray, you must remember who you are praying to. So often we lack courage, even when and if we pray, because we forget who we are praying to. But Paul does not make this mistake. In fact, he is very careful to begin his prayer with a clear and beautiful declaration of who God is and what he has done in verse 16. He says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and hope. He hasn't even gotten to the request part yet. It is fairly obvious that amid all the opposition and trials the Thessalonians were facing, and the false teachers telling them that they had been left behind and missed the return of Jesus, that they were discouraged. And one of the common marks of discouragement is that we begin to forget who God is or doubt how he relates to us. If we're honest, we've all experienced this. Flat tire, God hates me. Long line at in and out I don't even know if he's real anymore. Maybe you lost your job. Does God even care? When you're discouraged, it is a common temptation to forget or to doubt who God is. And whatever the case was for the Thessalonians, Paul begins his prayer by reminding them of powerful truths of who God is. Listen, declaring who God is at the beginning of your prayer is not for the purpose of reminding God. It's for the purpose of our own hearts. Listen, we don't sing our praises when we gather together on Sunday because God has forgotten who he is. It's not as if God's good for most of the week, but on Sunday he wakes up and he's like, guys, I'm kind of feeling insecure. I'm not feeling the love. Could you like get together once a week and just sing to me? And like, he's like, who am I? We're like, God, you're amazing. It's like, say it again. I forgot. Oh God, you're so faithful. What was that now? Could you just sing it again, Lord? We don't need to remind God who he is. We need to be reminded. That's why one of the reasons when you get together in our church to pray, whether it's pre-service prayer at 8 a.m. before our services, or in your weekly prayer groups, if you use the online guide, or if you come to our first Sunday prayer gathering, you'll notice that we always begin by praising God for who he is before we begin to bring our requests. He doesn't need to be reminded as if he forgot. We need to be reminded of who we are praying to. And Paul reminds us in two particular ways. He is the God of grace and he is the God of hope. First of all, when you're discouraged, remember that when you pray, you are praying to the God of grace. 
in mentioning the love of God here in verse 16? Is he alluding to Christ coming into our world, the incarnation? Could he be referring to his death on the cross, the crucifixion? Or could he have in mind rising again, the resurrection? Well, it seems that he would have all of it in mind. When Paul summarizes all that God has done for us in Christ, he simply uses the phrase, he loved us. He loved us. Now, why is this particularly important in prayer? Here's why. Listen. When we pray, we remember that God's gifts are given on the basis of his goodness, not our worthiness. Let me say it again, because this changes everything about how you approach God in prayer. If our God is a God of grace, and we believe he is, then we remember that God's gifts, when we bring our requests, they are dependent on his goodness, the goodness of the giver, not the worthiness of the recipient. Hallelujah, sister. Here's why that matters. Often in prayer, we tend to approach God as if the success, if I can use that phrase, of our request hinges on our merit. God, I've been a good little boy this week. God, I've been a good girl this week. And God's like, really? Have you? I, I, I didn't notice. Do we have a record of that in, in heaven? <laughs> as if my merit will somehow incline God's heart to answer my prayer. But it does not. We pray to a God of grace. And that is why we pray in Jesus' name. We use it so often that we forget the power of what we're saying in our prayers when we say, in Jesus' name, amen. I know for some, you almost view it as like, it's a little magical phrase you tap onto the end. If you add it at the end, like God has to give it to you, like it's, a, like it's magic. God, I want the Mercedes Benz. In Jesus' name, amen. God's like, well, I gotta give it to you. He used the magic words. He said in Jesus' name, so I guess I gotta give it to you. No, when we say in Jesus' name, it has everything to do with how and why we can even approach God. And notice when we pray, we do not pray in our name. How weird would it be if I got up here and I prayed for our time in the service and I just close, and God, we ask all this in Timothy's name, amen. Some of you are like, amen. Wait, hang on a minute. Just so you know, if we pray in Timothy's name, we're all doomed. Because <laughs> I got nothing. I have nothing with which to offer God. You have nothing that would somehow warrant God's gifts. But if we pray in Jesus' name, he has secured for us all the blessings and benefits of God through his life, his death, and resurrection as our representative on our behalf. And so where do we get the audacity to approach God in our time of need? In Jesus' name. You must remember who you are praying to, a God of grace. He is also as Paul reminds us, a God of hope. 
not only is it easy to lose sight of who God is in a time of discouragement, but also where we're headed. When we're suffering, when we're going through trials, we often get tunnel vision. I know I do. I just, I lose the bigger picture. I forget where I'm ultimately headed as a child of God. Such may have been the case for the beleaguered Thessalonians and such is often the case for us. And so Paul, as he begins his prayer, he reminds them and us of the eternal destiny of all who believe in Christ. Notice he says, the God of grace gave us what? Eternal encouragement and good hope. Isn't that a great phrase? Eternal encouragement. It will never go away. Why? Because our encouragement finds its source in Jesus Christ who conquered death and who is interceding for us now and who will one day come again. Eternal encouragement and also good hope. But it's important that we clarify our use of this word hope. As we often do in English, hope is used as wishful thinking rather than an assurance of a guarantee. If I can just illustrate this, we're entering into tax season right now, just as a reminder. Now imagine you have not filed. You may hope for a return. That, my friend, is wishful thinking. (laughs) You might say, well, it's tax season. I haven't filed them yet, but I hope, I long, I wish that I would get a return. That's an expression of desire. We often use the word hope in that way. But now imagine you've already filed and you've received word from the IRS that you will indeed receive a return and it is a good amount of money in exactly one month. Then you can start planning on how to save or spend in light of the future. That is, you have a good hope or a sure hope. Friends, when we talk about the hope of the Christian life, it is not wishful thinking. We do not sing in our songs at church, God, I kind of wish that maybe you'd come through someday. Like, that me- I don't know what that melody is. It was almost as bad as the words. Like, it makes no sense. That's not what we're talking about here. It is an assurance. That is why Paul says Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's a foreshadow of our own resurrection. More than that, God has given you who believe the Holy Spirit who makes his home in you, whom Paul said in Ephesians is your guarantee or down payment. God says, I am coming back. And just as a little extra proof for you, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit inside of you to make his home in you, to transform you from the inside out and lead you all the way to glory. It is a sure, good hope that we have. That's where we're headed. And you need to be reminded of that when you are discouraged. We must remember who we are praying to. We often rush to the requests, but I would charge you, friends, do not do so hastily. We must hold the grace and hope of God in view 
when we pray. It gives us perspective. A wonderful illustration of this is found in a book that we recommended last year, some of you may remember, written by Paul Miller called A Praying Life. And I love this simple illustration. He says, oddly enough, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they're focusing on praying, not on God. In prayer, focusing on the conversation is like trying to drive while looking at the windshield instead of through it. It freezes us, making us unsure of where to go. I was reminded of this quote because this week I had all this stuff on my windshield and it was like inhibiting my view. But I found as I was driving, I was focusing on the things on the windshield. Like my my eyes were fixed on it that I almost like ran into a car in front of me. Thank God I saw the brake lights like flashing at me. I was able to stop in time. My problem was I was looking at the windshield, not through the windshield. And when I did, I lost sight of where I was headed. Friends, in our time of discouragement, we often focus on the trial. We forget who God is, or we focus on how it is that we're praying as if we're offering a performance to God rather than looking through the windshield to the God that we're praying to. When you need encouragement, you must remember who you are praying to. And maybe some of us here this morning confess that you are looking at the windshield, not through the windshield. Maybe some of you are focusing more on your circumstances or maybe the the crafting of your request that you haven't paid attention to the God you're actually praying to. Could that be said of some of us this morning? We must remember he is the God of grace who loved us and gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. And it's in light of that truth that Paul begins to make his request. But when he does, it's a little surprising how he prays for people in need of encouragement. And that's our second point. First, remember who you're praying to. Number two, ask for exhortation. What? (laughs) What does that even mean? Well, I use the phrase because this is most likely the meaning of Paul's first request. Notice how it goes into verse 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts. Now, When we hear the word encourage, we most often think of comfort. And at times in the Bible, that is the meaning. But here, the most likely meaning, the interpretation of the original language and context might be better rendered as exhort, which is a strong urging to another. So Paul is praying that God in the midst of trouble, would strongly urge what? Their hearts. Why? Because the heart is the center of their moral life. It's in the heart that we make decisions. Let me quote one of the great commentators on this passage, G.L. Green. He says, most likely, 
The apostle has the moral sense of to exhort in mind, as is the case in the rest of the letter and elsewhere. Understood in this way, the petition would be that the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father would exhort their hearts, the center of their moral life. The idea is not simply that they might have internal encouragement, but that they might experience divine moral exhortation. Let me give you a few examples of how we might use the word encourage in this way, and then we'll apply it. And it is important that we do. If you were to seek my advice this week regarding what to do about a person at work, let's say, who is troubling you, treating you wrongly, and you are either tempted to give up or to show revenge, I might counsel you with these words. I might say, I strongly encourage you not to take revenge, nor to give up. I strongly encourage you to hold your ground, share the truth, and offer forgiveness. Do you notice how I used the phrase there? Strongly encourage in that context has a moral component to it. I'm calling you to, to a certain posture and an attitude. Or perhaps you're tempted to cut corners at work and cheat. And you tell me of your struggle. I might say to you, I strongly encourage you not to go down that path. That's the idea behind how Paul is using this word here. In fact, the word was also used in a military context. When a soldier needed help on the front line, you would exhort or strongly encourage another soldier to either hold their position or to join you on the front line. Here's why this matters. When you are facing discouragement, while you can and should pray for comfort, you should also ask for exhortation. That is, ask God for a strong conviction and a resolve that you would hold fast your convictions despite the trial, despite the temptation, so that you would make right decisions. Because we all know that we are particularly vulnerable when we're discouraged. We're tempted to give up when we're discouraged. We are tempted to cut corners when we are discouraged. Paul knew that. And that is why Paul prays. He doesn't merely pray for comfort. We can and we should. Please don't misunderstand me. But there's another element here. I pray for moral courage that these men and women, in the midst of their temptation, would hold fast to the truth. Because in seasons of discouragement, it's very easy to give up and to give in. This week, I was reminded of the scene in Homer's great work, The Odyssey, where the main character, Ulysses and his men, they had to set sail by an island where these mythical creatures called sirens lived. The sirens' voices were so alluring that they would persuade all passing sailors who heard their song to shipwreck on the island's 
rocky cliffs. Ulysses, however, knew of this danger. And so famously, he had his his men, his crew, fill their ears with wax so that they could not hear the siren's song. He also had himself tied to the mast of the ship so that he could not steer the ship towards the island and into danger. His resolve paid off. And in many ways, this is a picture for us. In times of discouragement and trial, we must tie ourselves to Christ and ask him for that resolve, that that conviction, that moral courage to resist the siren song of, of the world and discouragement and abandonment and temptation. Listen, friends, in tough times, we want and need comfort, but we also need resolve to decide in our hearts not to give in to the pressure of the world or to give up on our call. Ask for exhortation that God would strongly and sharply exhort your hearts, urge your hearts to hold fast and to stand firm in this moment of temptation. And one of the specific ways this encouragement happens is in the whole context of this chapter when we remember our future when we anticipate that great and glorious day where we will stand before Jesus Christ in his ultimate victory and give an account for our life. And when I have that perspective, I want to anticipate that future day and bring that into my current circumstance now. In times of great trial, it's been helpful for for me, when friends come alongside me and say, Tim, anticipate that future day. And I say, okay, one day I'm going to give an account for my life. How would I look back on this time now? How would I look back on this season in 2024 now with the hindsight of eternity? When I do that little mental exercise, it helps me. It gives me perspective. You've often heard me say, like, look, when you stand before Jesus, you're never going to look back with regret that you prayed too much. This is not like a real idea, but if I ever, you know, were to do an upcoming book, it would probably be called Things You'll Never Say When You Get to Heaven. One of them would be, I I shared the gospel too much. You're never going to say that in heaven. You're never going to get there and stand before Jesus Christ and be like, you know what? I have some regrets. I think I shared about Jesus Christ too much. And the Lord's like, yeah, it was a little excessive. (laughs) Never going to say that. One of the other things you will never say when you stand before Jesus Christ is I prayed too much. One of the things you will never say when you get to heaven is, man, I held too closely to Christ in my moment of temptation. I should have just lived a little. (laughs) You're never going to say that. And so Paul prays for exhortation. He essentially is praying that they would will to do God's will. It's one of the ways you could pray today. God, may I will to do your will. Would you conform my will to your will in this season of distress? And as a result, you will find encouragement. It's one of the ways God encourages us by giving clarity about how we're to behave and the attitude we are to have. 
So are you asking for exhortation? I must confess, this is not often at the top of my prayer list when I need encouragement. I like the comfort part. And I can and I should ask for this. How often do I ask for divine moral exhortation? Not often. But oh, church, we must. We must ask God to strongly urge our hearts to do his will. Will you pray that this morning? Will you begin to pray that? Will you ask him for that urging? See, some of us, we feel like we have to muster up our own mental and moral fortitude before we come to God. You know how I often pray when God makes me aware of this? I'm like, Lord, I don't want to do this. So can you help me to want to do it? Even when you don't desire it, pray that to God and ask him to change you from the inside out that we all might stand firm and hold fast. Friends, do you realize that the place of discouragement is not only an opportunity for temptation, but it is also an opportunity for transformation. And that leads to the third point, the final part of his prayer. We must remember who we're praying to, ask for exhortation, and lastly, pray for right words and deeds. This is practical. Despite the outward opposition that these men and women were facing, Paul prays that their words and their actions would reflect the God who loves them. And so he prays at the end of verse 17 that God would encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And from this request, we ask, what is the goal of his prayer? What should we pray for specifically and practically in turbulent times so that we we would be men and women who hold fast, that we would be inwardly fortified, but also what? Outwardly fruitful. Inwardly fortified, outwardly fruitful in our words and our deeds. Let me tell you why I think this is significantly important in our day and age, in our culture. I've noticed a trend over the last, you know, five to seven years, particularly on social media, that whenever prayer is requested or offered on the internet, the phrase thoughts and prayers is often understood cynically as if it were a replacement for responsibility and action. Thoughts and prayers is almost maligned. It's become almost a joke on the internet as if it were some kind of retreat or passive withdrawal. In fact, I came across an article this week. Let me tell you the title of the article. It was this, quote, if you really want to help someone, keep your thoughts and prayers to yourself. (laughs) That's literally the title. Now, I suppose one of the reasons for this kind of response is that some people do use the phrase, I'm praying for you, as an excuse for them to do nothing. Like if you called me this week and said, Tim, we need help moving all the furniture out of our house. We've got to move today. There's a deadline today. And I'm like, hmm, praying for you. 
oh, okay, can you still come over? Still praying. <laughs> okay, obviously used in that way, I get it. I get that there might be a negative reaction. But I think more often than not, one of the reasons why the phrase thoughts and prayers is so maligned is because people don't understand what prayer is or how important and powerful it is in the life of a person who follows Jesus. According to the Bible, prayer is not the foe of action. It is the fuel for right action. Let me use a silly example. Let's say you have a friend who calls you. Their car's broken down. They're in the middle of nowhere and they ask you for help. But sadly, you look at your own gauge on your car and you are on empty. And though you received the call on your phone, you don't have good enough signal to locate them in order to get directions. So you say, hey, I want to help, but like, I don't have gas and I don't know how to get there. Now imagine if they say, don't worry about the gas. Don't worry about the directions. Just get over here and help me. You might respond and be like, well, yeah, I, I, I want to, but like, I don't have gas. Like, I need gas to get there. I also don't have direction. Like, how do I actually get there? so that I can help. It's a silly illustration, but here's the point. Through God's word and through prayer, as we align ourselves with God and request his guidance and his strength, our convictions are shaped by him. Our understanding of the right way to do things is informed and the supernatural ability to carry it out is strengthened and given to us by God. That's what happens in prayer. If you understand prayer in this way, the question is not, why should I pray? The question is, how can I not pray? If there's a great need, you say, okay, there's a need, but I must pray so that I know how to meet that need in the right way with God's divine power. That's how prayer is understood in the Bible. One of the reasons we need to pray in times of discouragement is so that we can gain the strength to live and act rightly. I need the courage to do what is right, as we've already examined. I need the direction and the wisdom to carry it out. And so I must pray. And so you must pray, specifically for our deeds and our words. Our deeds that we put our faith into action is essential. For Paul, prayer is not the enemy of action. It is the fuel for right action. We must practice what we preach. Our lives are to be a visual aid for the gospel to a watching world so that they can see what it looks like when Christ comes into a person's life. After all, hypocrisy is one of the most common accusations against the church today. We know that. For there are, sadly, many who preach but do not practice. And it becomes a stumbling block to the watching world. The book of James has a lot to say about the importance of faith producing works. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 14 of his letter. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? That is, is it real, authentic, genuine faith in Christ? 
We must pray that when we're in a time of discouragement, we must pray that we act in line with Scripture in a time of pressure. I know it's often said desperate times call for desperate measures, but I would say, if I could just rephrase it, desperate times call for divine measures. Like, man, this is hard. I need to know what God wants me to do. I need to study his word to know how I must live. And that also includes our words. Because what we say matters. The words we use about Christ matters. The words we use about other people matters. And we know how powerful words can be. James, again, showing that this is a great evidence of whether we are a follower of Jesus or not, paints this spicy picture for us in chapter 3. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow, James, tell us how you're really feeling. He's showing us that apart from God's grace, apart from the guidance of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, this is what words can do. But in prayer... As we submit ourselves to God, even in moments of discouragement, and we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us in our deeds, we also ask him to guide us in our words so that our words bring life and not death, light and not darkness, truth and not lies. And so in times of trouble and discouragement, prayer should not be put aside in place of action. Prayer should be prioritized so that we might live and act rightly, that we might do and say what God would have us do and say. If through prayer, God strengthens and guides our conviction and our resolve and supernaturally strengthens us to live out these convictions, then prayer is absolutely essential. And notice, in a time of discouragement, what Paul does not pray for. Paul does not necessarily prioritize the elimination of the wicked, which for some of us is like our immediate go-to. Like, oh, my prayer life is great. God, smite them. <laughs> How does Paul pray? He does not pray immediately or prioritize the elimination of the wicked, but that amid the wickedness and hardship that these followers of Jesus would persist in every good word and deed. Because this is but a small picture of what was ultimately done for us in the life of Jesus. When Jesus came into our world, he was rejected. He was persecuted, falsely accused, and ultimately crucified by his enemies. And what did he do when he was hanging on that cross? 
He prayed. And what did he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He responded not by affirming their sin or sweeping their sin under the rug, but with sacrificial love, giving himself as a substitute for their sin and for our sin, dying in our place so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be saved, and rising again on the third day to give us eternal encouragement and good hope. This is the great love of God shown to us in the gospel. It is the grounds and goal of our prayers, and it is precisely what we need when we are discouraged. Remember who you are praying to. Ask for exhortation and pray that your words and deeds might reflect the love of Jesus Christ to a watching world as you receive the love of Jesus Christ for your own life. Let's pray that that would be so and let's do it right now. Heavenly Father, we do pray remembering that you are the God of grace, that you have loved us with an everlasting love and that this love was shown to us ultimately by sending your son to live, die, and rise for us all. We remember the hope that you've given to us. We pray that those truths would fill our hearts and bring us courage. We ask that you would urge us. We ask that we would will to do your will, though it might be hard. And we ask for our words and our deeds that they would reflect Christ. Father, I pray for those who don't know this, that they would believe in Jesus Christ today that they would know that this eternal encouragement and hope belongs to them by trusting in Jesus Christ this morning. And I pray for us as a church that we would not merely nod our heads or allow these words to go in one ear and out the other, but that we would truly respond in praise of who you are and praying for you to move in and through us even now. Holy Spirit, come. And move, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.